and I'm recording your phone going off like crazy. If you, ladies and gentlemen, want to ever have an anxiety attack, just sit with Dr. Carroll while his phone is not on silent. Is that really real? Is that real? Yeah. No way. Yeah. No. <laughs> yes. No. <laughs> I know. Tell me about it. I wish it weren't. Oh, what? Is that happening? Mm-hmm. Guys, gals, his phone just got turned off of silent, and I literally think, like, the dings are happening so quickly that it's not even, it's like a dee 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 It's like an, it literally is like a seizure. Okay, welcome to You'll Die Trying. You know, I, I, I'm sorry. You were in the middle of communicating, and I just went with it. I just went with it. You get really upset when I just hit record sometimes, but you know what? That's You said you'll love me where I'm at. Did I? One of the previous episodes you did. Remember we were talking about friendship and how we were actually friends, unless that was all farce. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Jay, uh, we want to say thanks again to our uh, sponsor of this episode, John Conti, John Conti Coffee. I'm grateful. Seriously, it, it's good stuff, and uh, my life has changed in this place. <laughs> Do you remember a couple episodes ago? It's like that's the thing that in the '80s and '90s, the doorstop that your kids just flip. flip. We have one of those. We have, you still have one? Yeah, in our basement. Okay. The dog hits it, but she can't hear it. It's hilarious. <laughs> uh, anyway, since we've uh, traded over and begun using John Conti coffee uh, here in our studio and in your funeral homes, it's uh, it's made all the difference. You hit the nail on the head last week. I think we were talking about how, you know, we've really needed to up our coffee game. And John Conti has graciously brought in some great, beautiful products. And I think they're in over 6,000 locations nationwide. Is this correct? 6,000 locations, 50 states, 4,000 pounds of beans roasted daily. I mean, we don't even have 10 locations yet. And it's like a headache. It's Amazing how they can make that happen. It's fantastic. And still deliver an incredible product. They, they, they roast right here in Louisville, Kentucky, Kentucky Proud product. Uh, like he said, there's 6,000 locations. Just 4,000 pounds are roasted every single day. And they are roasted and brought here at our locations. We serve them to the families in which we care for. We're proud to do that. Not only do they have John Conti coffee, they have Aqua Conti. Let's be honest, they have Conti, which you said... You love to put tea in your sugar, and it's absolutely delicious. So we want to say thanks so much for John Conti Coffee being a proud supporter of the podcast. Stephanie and all the team over at John Conti are very supportive of the podcast. They're huge fans of podcasts in general, and uh, I'm proud that they're fans of what we're bringing. Thank you to John Conti for sponsoring this episode of You'll Die Trying. Yes, thank you very much. You know, Jay, let's talk about your phone. Can we talk about it for a minute? Yeah. Like phones in the workplace in general... I understand you have to have it. That's a huge form of our communication here at the funeral home, funeral homes. You know, you have your calendar on there, you have Slack on there. How in the world do you operate your business without your phone? You can't, can you? It's a double-edged sword because during the day I really can't be on my phone. And yet it's, 
an absolute requirement for me to be able to do my work because I'm solo practitioner and choose to have a relationship with each of my clients and my patients uh, directly. So I do all my own scheduling and I do that using my cell phone. I do all my own uh, phone calls, return phone calls, texting, emailing from my phone. So it's an absolute requirement. Um, but, you know, it's, it's manageable. It's not the boss of me. It is. I don't feel that it is the boss of you. I have to give you kudos. I don't ever feel like when I'm with you, it's just constantly like you on your phone. And I'm sure Joy doesn't feel that way either. I mean, I hope not. Yeah. When I go home, I, it's typically not even with me. Yeah. But you have like, I mean, people call it all hours, right? Needing you? No. no oh, I've really? Kind of, right. I've built the practice such that it isn't exactly a, a, a kind of a crisis practice. It's more of a, ongoing, lifelong learning, um, working on self kind of thing. Of course, there are things that happen that are critical in timing, but it's, it's, uh, it's not that often that that happens. Yeah. Well, you do a great job at it, man. And oh, thank you, man. I think it's awesome. It means to, a lot to me. Yeah, no, I know. That's, it's very important. And going back, I hope I didn't. Your, your phone literally did just sound like a Christmas song about two minutes ago. Yeah, there were a lot of dinging. Oh, it really was. How many text messages was that? Honestly, um, about 40, 50? No, it wasn't that many. It looked like it's about 22. Oh, okay. No big deal. I'm lucky to get 22 in a day. No one loves me. Well, that's interesting you say that because I was thinking about uh, the other day, <clears throat> somebody was, I write a column in our local newspaper and uh, every now and then the content uh, veers uh, into the land of the controversial and... I have received some beautiful uh, and loving messages, oftentimes handwritten ones, mailed to my practice, to my home, thanking me for uh, the the words that I've offered. And and then there are also some people who might take take issue and choose to disagree and tend to publish those responses in the in the newspaper. <clears throat> but you know what the the thing that that does is it tells me that people are reading, people are. Um, engaging, and I love that. That's what it's all about. The article is, the column is called "Reclaiming the Public Square." The whole point is for us to come back into the public square with the civil conversation, civil dialogue about things that matter. But what it has reminded me of is a phrase that I use. Joy and I were just talking about it last night, and she said, "You know, I never really understood what it meant until now." that there is a little bit of activity, you know, or has been in the past couple of months regarding my columns in the paper. <clears throat> and the uh, the phrase that I use is, I never believe my own press notices. By which I mean, I tend not to believe it when people uh, are incredibly kind and forthcoming with compliments. Um, and I tend not to believe it when people uh, tend to be critical and forthcoming with criticisms. I kind of leave them both where they are, stand where I am, do my thing, not really worry about people being uh, <clears throat> taking issue with what I'm saying and, and really not being too invested in, in people being complimentary. Never believe your impressed notices. Recently in a podcast, we talked about love languages and words of affirmation. And how do you reconcile those those things. What do you think about your own press notices, the compliments, the criticisms, and how do you dance with all of that? Well, for a long time, I did hang you know, um, a lot, uh, on to what people said about me, whether good or bad. And, you know, that could sometimes dictate how I felt about myself. And, you know, as, as you get older, as you 
uh, walk into friendship with Dr. Carol, <laughs> who's constantly testing you and in, the, in a positive, and you're constantly kind of helping uh, me see things. It's it's not necessary. And that's really interesting that you say you kind of just leave it there. I think that's important. You know, I think it's, I think it's very important because you are at the end of the day, whether you write a column that's controversial or, or whatever, and someone likes it or doesn't like it. I mean, you're still Dr. Carol. You're still, you know, you know, I'm just one person trying to make, um, some sense of things and trying to use my education I'm not guessing. I'm not throwing things out there that are, you know, just interesting or controversial for controversy's sake. But I'm trying to speak the truth and and the truth as I see it or the truth as it turns out to be. And not everybody's going to see it the same way. I'm totally fine with it. And that's okay. Yeah. We've talked about that previously. We've talked about how it's everything that we do, like you being my friend. Previous episode, we were talking about how our friendship, I don't expect anything or, or need anything from you in the sense of Maybe I, I need I, I don't need your friendship. I, I value it, but I just love you where you are. You love me where I am. You and I are totally right. different backgrounds. I mean, I'm Roman Catholic, Presbyterian minister. You know, I'm speaking for you, so you can interject. But <laughs> my point is, is like our values aren't exactly the same. Our our, our beliefs, right? No, and that's I don't, okay. No, I don't think that they are. I don't think that two people ever have the exact same values and beliefs. And sadly. Some people don't even know really what they believe. And, and I think one of the most important things we can do as human beings is to define ourselves. And by defining ourselves, I mean to recognize where we stop and another person begins. And to do that, one must be able to speak with some degree of intelligence, I would say, conviction, commitment, clarity about what they believe. When I was in uh, postgraduate school, we, we had exercises where we had to write what they called belief papers, a paper about something, some topic, take a, a current event, take a hot button um, psychological or theological or sociological issue, things that people talk about kind of culturally, and, and stake your claim. Say what you believe, why you believe it, but you always use the language, I believe, I believe. And it's a way of declaring yourself as distinct, not over against other people, but distinct from other people. Whether somebody believes like you do or agrees with you or not really is immaterial. It's helpful in developing friendships and communities. Worshiping communities typically are made up of like-minded people around, you know, you go to a church, those people tend to believe kind of this, you know, similar things. But at the end of the day, group think is one of those, well, I guess one of the most dangerous things that you can, you can um, subject yourself to because it kind of gives way to mob mentality. Sometimes that can even become violent. So I encourage people to define themselves, know what you think, know what you believe about virtually everything. So if you're at a cocktail party and someone brings up this issue or that, hopefully you will have taken a little bit of time to think about that beforehand and to know what you believe enough to be conversational about it and say, you know what, this is what I think, this is what I believe. If someone comes at you with a disagreement, that's great. I mean, that's fodder for a wonderful conversation. I don't need to convince you or persuade you, but as long as I'm comfortable in my own skin, I don't need you to think and believe like I do. You get to be you, I get to be me, and that's how that's how that works. And then the workplace with these dynamics, with family dynamics changing, blended families, you know, people at retirement are, are moving from Kentucky, in this instance where we live, to across the country, whatever. They're, like all these dynamics are constantly changing. And in our workplace, at the funeral homes, like families that we're caring for, you know, they're coming in, you're caring for your uh, uh, 
Judaism, uh, families of Judaism faith or uh, uh, Buddhists, you know, these people at the end of the day, what are they? They're people that deserve to be loved and cared for. And when you sit at the table, you get to learn from them and get to hear about their beliefs and their practices, their faith practices, or, you know, you just get to meet them where they are and, and love them along the way. And I think that's kind of, it's okay. I mean, it's okay. Back to you writing what you write or people thinking what they think. If I doesn't believe, agree with me, or I don't think it's, if it lines up with me, it doesn't make me better or worse than you or vice versa. It's- well, there is a saying that I use often and, and it is this, it is none of my business what other people think about me. I have a mentor that says uh, what people don't know about you, they're going to make up. <laughs> yeah. Nature hates a vacuum, mm-hmm. right? There's a, you'll be surprised and shocked to hear this, but there's a recent study that uh, <laughs> no. demonstrated that uh, I think it's uh, in psychological science journal or human nature behavior journal. I can't remember which it is, maybe both. But recently a study shows that people are less likely to be accurate in their understanding of how they themselves are perceived after a first meeting or first encounter with someone. In other words, I just meet you, we talk, I'm going to go away and I'm going to replay what I said, and I'm going to be more critical of myself. I don't have the resources and tools to think about what you said and you do, because I'm so focused on me and I tend to second guess myself. So then I have kind of a negative impression of that encounter, meaning I've completely overthought it. Meanwhile, you may be doing the same thing about your experience and uh, behavior, but your experience of me or mine of your of you is probably very positive. But we, because we tend to think of ourselves more negatively, we then project that onto the other person, thinking, "Well, I'm sure they thought that I was an idiot." When the study shows the exact opposite. Let me ask you this, guys. I wish you all could see my face because when you when you speak to me, I do I look like an idiot in headlight, like a deer in headlights when I'm, you're talking? Because I'm just I'm Every trying. Every time I've man. seen a deer in my headlights, it's it ends really bad. Close to my windshield, <laughs> it ends really bad. Yeah. Where do you find the time to f- continuously research? I mean, I guess I do with you know maybe books or being around the mentors that I'm around and being around you. Like, where do you re- do you sleep? I do sleep. It's I consider it uh, an issue of stewardship because I have all these people who who uh, come to me and I'm so privileged to get to see them uh, every week or every other week or once a month or once a quarter or whenever. And I take such high privilege and such deep uh, honor in that that I want to make sure that I bring um, my best thinking every single time. And in order for me to do my best thinking, I have to be continuously learning. So... Every chance I get, I'm reading something. I think it's important to learn something every single day of your life. Yeah. It's crucial. I have 12 books going all the time. And you know which one each one's about right now? Yeah. I mean, that and sounds so like a dumb I have, question. I'll have one in my, my truck. I'll have one next to my bed. I'll have one next to a chair at home. I'll have one in the kitchen. I'll have one in other places of, you know, dispose. I have them everywhere. And uh, I, I like to pick them up and read them and... The thing about books is they tend to find you rather than we find them. And so I'll have a book that I will have bought a long time ago and never really got around to. And when I finally do get around to it, I'm like, oh, that looks interesting. I read it. It's like the absolute perfect time in my life for that book. I don't know how that happens. So I think they kind of find me, but I like to keep a list of them going so that I'm always engaging. These are the conversation partners. You know, when you're not in an academic community anymore and you're used to that, like I had a lot of time when I was in an academic community, got to 
uh, debate and think and talk with and discern together with a bunch of people. Now I'm kind of a lone ranger. I'm, I'm like in the chair by myself all day unless I'm at the funeral homes, which is one of the reasons why I love it because I get to be a part of a team and not be by myself. My books become my, um, those are the other voices on my team. Those become my community. Those become the people with whom I engage and listen and learn and talk. And uh, I don't talk with them and share with them, but I do engage them in a way that I think is is helpful to me and to my practice and to who I am. It'd be kind of weird if you were talking to your books. Yeah. Not just reading them, but talking to them. That'd Hello. be unusual. Huh? People all, all, oftentimes will apologize or kind of excuse themselves for talking to themselves. They're like, yeah, I kind of talk to myself. Isn't that healthy? Yeah, it's totally. I tell like, I think you're a great person to talk to. If I were you, I'd talk to myself too. Yeah. I mean, we have, there's a guy on staff here uh, that I always give him a hard time, but I'm joking because every time I walk by, I mean, he's talk, telling him, you know, walking down the hallway, just talking to himself as to what he's doing, just so he doesn't forget and keep, you know, focus on that. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing whatsoever. No. You're talking about changing from book to book. Well, you're not changing, but you're reading multiple books and maybe yeah. think of change. Right. Within the world that we are in, within the world of business, it's constantly changing, ever-evolving policies, procedures. Everything is constantly at a moment's notice. It's just like, I'm a terrible snapper, but I don't know if I got it in there. It's constantly changing. Right. Most people have no problem. Well, what do you think? Do you think a lot of people have problem with change? It scares a lot of people, doesn't it? It's fear. Fear is what we talked about in a previous episode. And uh, Let's talk a little bit about change in the workplace. I am a huge huge believer in change. I love it. You know that. I'm all about it. I'm chasing the change constantly. I mean, for the better, man. I'm not just like, oh, let's change it just because. Right. If it's not broke, don't need to fix it. But if we need to update, upgrade, change something, I'm all for it. What are your thoughts on change? I believe, as the Buddhists do, that change is the only real constant. Uh, it's inevitable. It is. There's a saying, I can't remember, Archimedes or some ancient Greek philosopher who said, you can never step in the same river twice. And I say that to people all the time. People will come, they'll talk to me in a, a therapy session, and they're like, well, I was thinking what I was going to say when I when I came in today. I just couldn't think of anything. And then all of a sudden, an hour has passed, and we've had all this rich, fertile ground that we've covered. It's because they thought that they were the same as when they left last time, but then they discover after a few probing questions that they are radically different in some substantive ways from when they were here last time. So you are different now than when I saw you earlier today and last week. I'm different now than when you saw me. We are always changing because of our context, our environment, the way that we interact with other people, things that we might have learned, things that we might have experienced. It is nothing shy of a life full of change. And I have to say, I love it, but it does bring a lot of anxiety to a lot of people. It really does. We had a uh, team meeting today and we implemented quite a bit of change, you know, constantly ever evolving, finalizing some acquisitions and new procedures. And it was just uh, one that, uh, how long was the meeting? Like two and a half hours? It was two hours, about two, uh, 2.15. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Not to mention I ate quite a few of those blueberry donuts. I shouldn't have done that, Jay. You feel bad? I feel bad. Should we talk about sugar in a minute? <sighs> No, because we can go back to John Conti and Conti and you want diabetes. and I love diabetes. <laughs> and John Conti tea is delicious. Well, It's perfectly brewed every time. So are those donuts. I'm going to go for a run today. I really am. I'm going to go for a run. I've got to get back into it myself. You need to. It's yeah, good. I hate it. I heard you huffing and puffing coming up the stairs. I'm not going to yeah, lie. Yeah, and I don't, I don't even <laughs> smoke. It's really funny because Megan and you will come up the stairs and you are both huffing and puffing for totally yeah. different reasons. Yeah, she's pregnant and, and I was carrying you. 
So back to change, everything changes, nothing remains without it. What do you think about that? That's you, the, the quote that you said about no one steps in the same river twice. I love it. I'm a visual guy. I'm a visual learner. It's really neat for me. Uh, bring it, bring it. I don't know when I started to embrace it and love change so much, but I guess maybe it was the music world that I was in new city all the time, kind of just wake up and you're in some, you know, busted gas station somewhere and you go inside and get some beef jerky sticks. I don't, you don't know where you are. Uh, I, I just have always enjoyed it. Do you think people have the power to change themselves? Absolutely. Your brain is powerful. What do we say to the people who believe that you cannot change, fundamentally cannot change? You can make adjustments, like for instance, personality. Your personality is formed by around the time of preschool age. There is debate about whether your personality can change. But of course, I think it changes. It just may not always change for the better. But I think the more experiences you have, you go through adolescence, you go through losses, you go through wins. At some point, I do think that there are some fundamental changes. But do you think that people can, with intention, enter into a space in which they can fundamentally change who they are? Yes. Yes, I do believe that. I want to believe that. I want to believe that, too, that I think if we get out of our own way. I don't know why I'm hung up on that statement. But I've said it a few times, and I mean it. If we get out of our own way, we can thrive, excel, better oneself. Because I think sometimes we really give ourselves pushback. Going back to, I think, one of our first episodes, you talked about how people get into the rut of being uh, totally content and and okay with sadness or, do you understand, the yeah. status quo? And so they're like, right. that's the world they're in. That's, right. that's what they're used to. They almost maybe even like the attention that it gets them. But if you get out of your way, good things can happen. Mm -hmm. I feel like I've changed. I absolutely want to believe that people can change, and I do think that they can. I think that it, first of all, starts with awareness. I think you have to be aware of what's going on in you. I think you have to be self-critical, not in the sense of self-shaming, but in the sense of seriously thoughtful. You know that word critical, like critical thinking, doesn't mean being criticizing. It means being serious. I think we need to be serious in our self-reflection, serious in our introspection, get serious about who we are, who we want to be, and then be intentional with no-nonsense commitment about making changes. It's not a snap your finger, flip the switch. It's an on-again, off-again process that can be beautiful one day and tragic the next and, and, and have no progress at all. Beautiful, and, painful. Yeah. And all progress brings regression. Three steps forward, two steps back. You've got a net effect of a step of, of progress there. I think that when you step backwards, you backslide, as they used to say in my Baptist upbringing. I think that's an opportunity for perspective rather than say, oh, wow, look, I've fallen backwards. It's like, oh, look how far I had gone. I get new perspective. I think it energizes, hopefully motivates, and propels me forward, and I go beyond where I had gone. So ultimately, I'm always going forward. Um even with a little bit of regression. You quote a lot of philosophers. The the really famous philosopher, Paula Abdul, had a song called, uh, in the 80s, I think it said, Two Steps Forward and Two Steps Back. Yeah. Yeah. Great philosopher. Opposites attract. You know. Uh, Muhammad Ali, another great philosopher, <laughs> he said once that 
a person who views the world the same at 50 years old as they did at 20 years old has wasted 30 years of living. God, I love this stuff. Isn't that great? That is so awesome. I agree. I think it's true. That is so awesome. I have served people uh, who, in, in church settings, who have said, I, uh, I believe what I've always believed. I grew up with this. My father, my mother, my grandparents taught me this. And even though I'm 80 years old, nothing's changed. I've never had a doubt, never had a question. I simply believe what I was, what I was given. I think there's kind of a, a radical simplicity. There's even something kind of beautiful about that. But at the same time, I also think that's a little sad. I never want to say that I still believe exactly as I did when I was a child because I, I have the faith of my parents. It goes back to defining yourself. I want to have a faith that fits me. You know, Jesus is great about this, and then Martin Luther King Jr. was great about it in, in the same vein, that they would kind of bless the tradition. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say, Jesus says, love your enemies as you love yourself. Uh, Muhammad Ali, I mean, not Muhammad Ali, Martin Luther King Jr. would say the same thing. I think there's something powerful to say, my parents believed this way, and they taught me these things. And I have been able to incorporate those core teachings into my own thinking, my own belief, my own philosophy, my own uh, way of seeing the world, which I call a worldview. But it's mine, distinct from anyone in my family and distinct even from my own children. I'm encouraging my own children. They have to believe and think on their own, develop their own ways of seeing the world. I'm not one to push an agenda and make my kids believe it, other than things like kindness and tolerance. Like those are those are non-negotiables, but um, truths with a little t, um, teachings, um, ways of being in the world that we've picked up as kids. I'm I'm encouraging them. You know what? You've got to think about this stuff on your own. There is something cool though about the open-mindedness of a child. You know, like God does, or Jesus uh, doesn't. Jesus say only those like children will enter yep. the kingdom of heaven, and, yep. and I think that that is something that we can apply to life. Is just how we. That was my chair, by the way. This chair is about seven hundred years old. I think this was actually BC before Christ. So, <laughs> do you know in academic circles now we say CE and BCE, the Common Era and before the Common Era? Really? Yeah, uh, because it's a less. Uh, I guess the academy would say a less Christocentric way of seeing things. Got it. Uh, you can say BC here. It's totally fine. Thank you. It doesn't have relationship to the headache powder. <laughs> it doesn't make, and it doesn't offend you. And we're not sponsored by BC. BC is not a sponsor. Not a sponsor today. I was uh, just getting a bunch of Slack messages on my phone. Um, Dr. Carroll's talking so eloquently and Slack messages are coming in left and right from the funeral homes as far as all the stuff that's going on. I think you can be too con connected, circling back to your phone going off. You can be too connected, mm -hmm. but it's cru it's it's important. Back up. My brain. So do you want to change? Do I want to change right now? Like who I am? Yeah. What angle? That's your angle? Let's go there. It's oh. self-defined. You define it. Okay. Well, I didn't mean to define it that way and so intense. I, I like where I am personally. I like who I am. I like my character. I like and have accepted my flaws, although there are only two because I'm 
pretty, I've almost reached <laughs> the pinnacle of perfection. Right. Said no, no one. Sitting at the right hand of the Father. Yeah, absolutely. Not even that means true. God was left-handed, by the way, because <laughs> Jesus is sitting on the right hand. Listen, I... I'm I'm one of those guys that tell a joke or say something to someone, and I'm trying to play a joke on someone, and then I always get give it up really quick. Cause I'm like, no, no, I'm, t- I'm totally kidding. Oh, oh, yeah. So that goes back to caring what other people think. Probably. See, I just wanted to make sure that people listening didn't think I'm just this. Who? You know what? I don't care. I was kidding. I was you making do. a joke. I do. You Remember, totally that's care. That's totally just moving on, moving on, and acknowledge. I don't want to change who I am personally right now, except maybe work on not caring so much. Uh, from a business standpoint? Right. As a leader in any capacity, are uh, we not obligated to understand the undercurrents of, of behavior so that we can adapt our style to what's going on around us? So adaptation, I think, is the word we use for change these days in adapt, leadership circles. Ad- as a professional, yeah, I'm always needing to adapt mm-hmm. constantly. So that brings me to uh, another question, and it has to do with um, blind spots. There's a great book with that title about the, obviously, by virtue of the title, the unseen biases and prejudices that everybody brings to their encounters with others and to their experiences. We are born into families that have biases. We are educated in systems that have biases. We come to work alongside people who have biases. This is not right or wrong, good or bad pretty or ugly. This, it just is. is. But it's important to know that it is, and it's important to become conscious of what is, and it's important, I think, to make clear delineations and demarcations between those areas that we have uh, awareness about and those that we don't. So we have to bring to consciousness that which we're not really aware of, and that is our biases. Every single one of us is biased. I'm thinking about this right now. I think blind spots are our biggest obstacles to being effective leaders. Wow. How do effective leaders continuously work on those blind spots? I mean, it's just, you said adapting and... First of all, I think accepting them, uh, questioning them. That's the hardest thing for people to do. Why is it so hard for people to accept a flaw? It, it's... I'm going to be honest with you and tell you that I'm probably the world's worst. Dr. Carroll, mm-hmm. really? Yeah. Why? I think it's because I I was expected as a young person to, to carry on responsibilities of an older person in light of uh, the death of a parent. And there was a spoken expectation that, you know, you know, basically you got to be the man of the house now. And I don't begrudge that. I think that was probably one of the best things that could have happened to me. But a uh, result of that, or kind of uh, maybe some fruit of that, has been that I have had uh, exceedingly high expectations of myself. And as a result, have had a relatively uh, high level of resistance to my own flaws. I like to hide them. Hmm. I've told people before, including my therapists, plural, because when you go through this work, you got to have, you, know, you got to do a lot of work on your own because you, ne- you can never take a, a client or a patient any farther than you yourself have been willing to go. I think that's true in leadership too, by the yes. way. But I've told them before, you know, I like to, I have liked historically to imagine myself as kind of um, uh, polished and framed and, and stuck on the wall, dusted, and everybody has to worry about it. 
You know, I really put a lot of emphasis when I was uh, preaching in a church on delivery and uh, flawless execution so that people didn't worry. Because you've been in a place where someone's been speaking, like you, you've seen a lot of people deliver funeral homilies and officiate funeral services. Never read their obituary, please. Just stop. Just don't read the obituary. Yeah, that does not count as a homily. Because the family sat for two and a half hours with you to create it anyway, so they know it word for word. And they everyone wrote it. in the room has already read it. Because they're there. It just says you didn't do your work. And I'm not prepared, so please. It says you didn't take time to either get to know the person or sit down with their family just and listen to stories. Just don't. I didn't mean to interrupt. Just We're going to come back around to that because okay. that's a really important point. But uh, I never want... You've been there. You've been where you've listened to people and you're a little nervous like, oh. And you've heard people call the, the loved one by the wrong name, and you've seen people cringe. You've seen speakers sweating. No one was comfortable. You were very uncomfortable. And my goal throughout my nearly 20 years of doing that was I don't want anyone worried about how I'm going to do what I'm going to say and how I'm going to deliver it. So it's always been important to me to be perceived as perfect. I think this podcast is good for you then. Vulnerability right there. Because that's what this is 101. Whenever we sit and we listen back to a few episodes, I can recall both of us saying, maybe we should edit that out. I think I've even jokingly said it and we're like, eh. You, you know. know, this is entirely unscripted and unedited. This for our is, listeners, we have never edited an episode. Not it's one a, time. It's a commitment that we make. We're never going to do it. We've questioned it and then we both are like, no, we're not. It's important that you learn how to use that little 10 or 15 second skip button too on your on your phones yeah. so that when we start to drone on and on, you just move past it. The content will, will follow soon. But I'm just, in all vulnerability, of course I know I'm not perfect. There's no such thing as perfect. And I use the word perfect meaning whole, not blemishless. But I, none of us is whole either. I mean, we're all broken. They're all empty seats at empty tables. There are holes in the fabric of things because we've lost people that we've loved or we've lost relationships or we've lost opportunities within relationships or we've had to ask for forgiveness or we've had to give forgiveness. No one's whole. We're all of us broken. But it's through those cracks that the light gets in. That's how we learn to see. But I tend to push all that aside and just wish people could see me as something that I'm not probably. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that. I think everyone can relate to that in some form or fashion. I really do. Yeah, I hope so. I I really do. I think wherever you are in your walk, I think wherever you are in your workplace or at your home, uh, I think it's I think it's okay. I think to yeah. accept it, acknowledge it, acknowledge it. Uh, accepting is not saying, "Oh, this is how I'm always going to be." If you need to better yourself, then do it. It's kind of painful. It hurts, but it's beautiful. Here's the process I've learned that works for me. First of all, you have to name it. So this is your coming to an awareness. When you name things, you strip those things of of, uh, 50% of their power, at least, just by naming them. All throughout the New Testament, Jesus is encountering, quote unquote, demon-possessed people, which probably people with mental illness. And Jesus would say, you know, call the name out. All of a sudden, the power dynamic shifts because we've we've talked about before, we tend to fear what we don't know. Mm -hmm. We don't have to, but we tend to. And when we've named it, now we know it. And 50% of that power over us is gone. So first you have to name it. Secondly, you have to engage it. I've named the fact that I wish I could be presented in this way. I'm never wrong. I'm always right. I always have the best thinking. I never have a bad day. I'm never a jerk. You know, all that stuff, which goes through my head. I name that. Then I have to engage it. What 
what's that about? Like, where's that coming from? I know, okay, okay, it comes from my childhood. There were a lot of expectations put on me. I felt responsible for things I probably wasn't responsible for, and I've always felt that way. And then I grow a little bit resentful. There's probably some anger built up in there. So that's me engaging it, right? Then I have to unmask it. You have to tear the mask off and say, you know what? This is me. It's liberating too, isn't yeah, it? It is. Scary, but it's in a good way. Good scary. Yeah. That's your challenge this week, everyone. That's your challenge. It's uh to name it. Um, tear that mask off. And um, you know, that's what this whole podcast is about. You know, I think it's really neat to to have people come to me and say that they feel like they need to pay you, Dr. J, for the therapy that they're hearing themselves nice. and listen to. And, you know, a friend saying something along the lines of um being more present for their kid in a previous episode, we were talking about presence, uh, you know, being present and, uh, work and life and balance and they're one and the same. And it's, it's, it's cool. I, I appreciate where we're able to do this. Well, I just want, I want to give people an opportunity to think about something a little bit differently from a little bit of a different angle. And as about this, especially, I want people to give themselves the liberty and liberation from trying to be perfect because we aren't. And there is power in imperfection. There's uh, beauty and uh, strength in recognizing that we aren't, any of us, truly whole or complete. Maybe one day we will be. I don't know what you think about that. But for right now, there is a beauty in our imperfections. And I think we have to give dignity and honor and respect to those broken places in us. And as Ernest Hemingway says, you know, the world breaks everyone and some grow strong in the broken places. We can only hope that that's true for us. Guys, gals, you all are appreciated. We appreciate you listening to today's episode of You'll Die Trying. Please uh, be sure to visit anchor.fm forward slash you'll die trying. Please be sure to subscribe. Did I say it better this time? You did. It was perfect. Make sure uh, you leave a comment. Go to our Facebook page, You'll Die Trying. Uh, also on Instagram, uh, Die Trying Podcast. And uh, leave us a note. And let us know some things that you'd like for us to uh, to discuss. Feel free to leave questions, and we will respond as best as we know how. Until then, thank you for joining. I'm Nathan. This is Jonathan. And uh, have a great week, guys.